2: From Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. The CDC and FDA recommend a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Over six cases of what they describe as a rare and severe type of blood clot. Find out how this will affect California's vaccination effort. Plus, enrollment of the state's community colleges has collapsed. We'll hear if this means that closing campuses is next. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me Martinez, thanks for spending your day with us. Coming up, we're going to check in on the latest in a lawsuit over how officials are handling homelessness here in Los Angeles. That's just ahead. But first, the big news today, that federal health officials have called for a pause in the use of the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine. Now, this after reports that six women who got the vaccine Develop blood clots. For context, close to 7 million people have gotten this vaccine in the United States to date. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention does say the blood clots are extremely rare, but it is reviewing the cases. Until that review is complete, the agency called for this pause in distribution, quote, «out of an abundance of caution». KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier is here to explain how all of this will affect vaccines here in California. Now, Jackie, have we stopped using the uh, Johnson & Johnson shot here in California?
0: Yes. The California Department of Public Health, which leads the state's COVID-19 vaccination effort, has said that they have hit the pause button on distributing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to counties and municipalities. Local health departments across Southern California, including L.A. and Orange Counties, Riverside and Long Beach, have all said that they will not use it until they get further direction uh, from federal health authorities.
2: This pause, how long is it going to be?
0: Yeah, at least a few days. uh, FDA and CDC scientists will meet and look at the cases of the six women who developed blood clots after getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And then, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. Now,
2: should someone who has taken the Johnson and Johnson vaccine be worried?
0: I mean, they're extremely rare. The the clots that have been reported so far were in women between the ages of 18 and 48. Their symptoms emerged six to 13 days after vaccination. At a press conference this morning, federal health officials said at this point, there's not enough information to say whether any particular uh, subgroup is being affected. And there are so few cases, it's too hard to determine if there's any specific risk factors that might predispose someone to developing these clots.
2: Okay, now is there a window of time maybe that people need to monitor for possible blood clot issues like say two weeks?
0: So the FDA says the clots are rare and a severe type that happen in the blood supply that drains from the brain. Um, the symptoms can vary, uh, but they include headache, blurred vision, fainting, loss of consciousness, uh, loss of control or movement in part of the body and seizures. Um it would be uh, no longer than three weeks after the vaccination. So if you have gotten the Johnson and Johnson vaccine somewhere in that time, it is possible. The FDA says if someone develops very severe, you know, headaches, abdominal pain, shortness of breath within those three weeks after getting the shot, they should, you know, seek medical attention. Now, I would say too, that we're talking about like extreme headaches, something that you would consider going to the hospital over, not just the kind of run of the mill side effects.
2: Okay. Now, what does this mean then? And for our big statewide expansion of vaccine eligibility on Thursdays to to every Mm -hmm. Californian 16 and over, That, that was a big deal when that was announced. (laughs)
0: It was. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom said this morning that that is still the plan to expand to 16 and over this week. But by not using the Johnson and Johnson doses, that does mean that fewer people are going to get vaccinated. Uh, We already had a big decrease in Johnson and Johnson vaccines coming into the state because of that manufacturing mix up that ruined millions of doses earlier this month.
2: That said, Governor Newsom did say
0: that Johnson & Johnson was only about 4%
2: of the state's current supply. Okay, 4%. So what about uh, on the local level, more L.A.?
0: So I spoke with an official in L.A., uh, Mayor Garcetti's office this morning, and they told me that it won't have any effect on the six permanent vaccine sites run by the city, uh, like Dodger Stadium, Cal State, LA, because those sites weren't scheduled to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But the mayor's office did have to cancel sites that are using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine today, including clinics vaccinating uh, homebound people, some mobile operations at LAX, and mobile clinics clinics focusing on the homeless. L.A. County health officials say they're reaching out to people who had appointments that will be affected and they'll be rescheduled for a Pfizer or Moderna shot. So if you had an appointment that might be affected, you should be hearing from them. I also talked to Jim Monja, who's the CEO of St. John's Well Child and Family Center. They operate clinics throughout the hardest hit areas of Los Angeles. He told me they immediately switched to the Pfizer vaccine, and that wasn't a problem. But now he's concerned about a new issue, which is making sure that people come in for their second shot in three weeks.
3: I feel very concerned about tracking down people experiencing homelessness who we meet at a shelter. Where do we find them in three weeks? How do we contact them? How do we find them? You know, we're kind of collecting a whole bunch of information information getting a sense for where people stay, where do they sleep at night, if they're not in the shelter.
0: Manja told me that they're vaccinating about a thousand homeless people a day in L.A., but now he's not sure how many they'll be able to vaccinate because they have to spend so much time gathering information.
2: Now, Jackie, I got to ask because it kind of now becomes an elephant in the room here. Is there a risk of this just adding to that vaccine hesitancy that uh, might already be there for some people?
0: I mean, I think there's a little bit of a risk, but there's a lot of pent up demand to get vaccinated in California. I mean, just remember what happened at Bakersfield. People were willing to drive, you know, four hours just for the chance of getting a shot. Um, But this could make more people, you know, wary of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Again, these blood clots are very rare. In the meantime, we've got the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that have been injected into millions of people, myself included, that are safe and effective. So if you're concerned about it, just, you know, get one of the other two.
2: All right. That's KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier explaining the move to pause use of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Jackie, thanks a lot.
0: Thanks.
4: Do you
2: see?
5: The sun is rising, most definitely. A new day's come.
2: The pandemic has put a lot of stress on the state's community colleges as enrollment plummets. The nonprofit news organization EdSource recently crunched the numbers and found that of the 105 campuses, 35 of them saw a drop of more than 20 percent, sounding alarm bells throughout the system, which is the largest in the nation. For more on what's going on and what it all means, we turn to KPCC's higher education reporter, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Now I cited one stat up there, but how are enrollment numbers across the state and what areas have been hit the hardest?
3: Well, there are lots of moving parts to this issue. Um, Yes, about one in six community college students statewide dropped their classes. We're seeing the biggest effect in rural areas. Uh, They're seeing big drops. And also, campuses in dense urban areas, such as Santa Ana and Compton in Southern California. I've reported quite a bit on this issue in the past year, and there's there's quite a bit of range in these enrollment drops. Even in the nine-campus LA Community College District, we're seeing double-digit drops, such as the L.A. Southwest College, and single-digit drops, such as in L.A. City College.
2: And I can imagine that uh, includes a lot of students of color in those areas that you mentioned. Now, um, these campuses, like every school in California, had to turn to remote learning this past year, which really wasn't easy on anyone. Uh, But what have you heard from students about why they withdrew from classes and maybe didn't enroll at all?
3: Well, to understand this dynamic of dropping enrollment, you have to look at the community college population, okay? So it's an older population, older than the four-year university population. Community college students are less likely to have graduated high school recently. They're more likely to be holding down at least one job and responsible for taking care or supporting financially others in their household. Uh, Norma Patricia Paniagua, a student at LA Valley College, is one of these students. And this is what she had to say about that.
4: I now had to become a full-time parent, full-time teacher, (laughs) and full-time worker all at once at home. And so the bandwidth is not the best. There's different issues that um, contributed to my decision not to, um, well, to first drop my class and then also to not enroll
3: And other students told me that their landlords raised their rents and they had to drop their classes to work. And let's look at where the drops are the steepest in those places that that I talked about. Santa Ana, Compton, South LA. Those are areas where COVID has hit the hardest. They're low-income areas, largely Black and brown communities. And it's affecting students with the least resources. And that has a ripple effect. So these students don't have access, don't have the money to buy computers, to have, you know, good Wi-Fi at home. And maybe not even the family support to stay in college. There are some exceptions. I talked to administrators at LA City College, just west of downtown LA. And they seem to fit this profile of an urban college where there might be a high enrollment drop. But their enrollment drop was only 3%. Oh Well,
2: that's, uh, that's decent news, at, at least. Now, this uh, had to be a financial hit. So what are, the, what are the short-term and long-term implications of enrollment being down? And actually, Adolfo, will some campuses have to close?
3: Well, I'm not hearing talk of that quite yet, which is very different than the dynamic in K through 12 public schools where enrollment drops lead to funding cuts pretty quickly after they happen. That's not the case at community colleges, but administrators are taking this enrollment drop very seriously. Here's what LA Community College District Board Chair Andrea Hoffman told me about that.
6: These numbers are not just numbers to me, they're people. And I think that the community college system statewide, and especially in Los Angeles County, is going to have to um, play an integral role in the recovery uh, of our region. And I think that we can do that, and we're going to need to be able to bring these students back that we've lost uh, for retraining, right, for the jobs of the future, whatever those jobs are going to be, and they're probably going to look very different than how they did in the past.
3: People I talk to say that adjunct faculty at community colleges may be hit the hardest by these enrollment drops. This is because as fewer students enroll in a campus, administrators are going to have to cut classes and eliminate some of those classes, and those are going to be classes that are going to be taught by uh, part-time faculty, uh, which make up a large part of the instructors at each campus. All this, this is good context. A This is all happening as Governor Newsom is deciding community college funding for next fiscal year when he releases his revised budget next month. So as we speak, community colleges are pushing Sacramento to get them more money to run their programs.
2: And all that, of course, has a ripple effect across communities, doesn't it? Because if local community colleges are no longer available, that impacts the entire state.
3: Well, yeah. Think about it from the point of view of the students. The students don't get those certificates, those degrees don't transfer to four-year universities. And like I just mentioned, the faculty, right? So they're now scrambling to make up income,
2: right? We're talking to KPCC's higher ed reporter, Adolfo Guzman-Lopez, about the drop in enrollment across the state's community college system. Do you know, uh, Adolfo, if the state's community colleges are in general going back to in-person instruction in the fall?
3: I've been reaching out to campuses and there are no final decisions that have been made just yet. I'm hearing the faculty and administrators are working out the details. And this is because community colleges are run by their own boards of trustees and presidents. So because of that dynamic... A campus, let's say in LA and Riverside and Fullerton, the reopening may look very different in different geographic areas. I am hearing concerns that if most community college classes are remote, many more students will not enroll.
2: Yeah. I mean, even back when I was in a community college, this was back in the late 80s, I, I knew back then that a community college student, if they left for whatever reason, whether it was to work because they had to or support uh, a parent because they had to or support their kids because they had to, they probably were not going to make it back on campus. And that is something that is life changing. It changes uh, life trajectory. So obviously some campuses then are going to have to get very creative to bring these students back, to get them back, even if classes are, are in person again. And you did a story on a school that actually maintained enrollment. So, Adolfo, how did they do that and could it be a model for others?
3: Yeah, that's LA City College that I just talked about. Administrators there told me that the outreach program that they started about three years ago um, has helped them keep students in school and graduate. That was the intent of the program when when they started it. And now that program during the pandemic is keeping students in school. The president of the campus, created this outreach program in a customer service oriented program. So LA City College counselors and staff keep in touch with students from high school past their first year. They constantly reach out to them either by email, text, that sort of thing, offering them support, asking them what they need. And their philosophy has been to keep students enrolled even if it's not full-time, keeping them enrolled in one class. Once a student drops all of their classes, it's very hard to get them back into the college mindset. And by college mindset, I'm talking about not only physically going to class or clicking on that Zoom link or reading or doing the schoolwork, it's the psychology behind identifying as a college student.
2: Right, you know, back then, so that LA City College was my very first community college. I I met someone who came to LA City College all the way from Sylmar. She wanted to be a part of the communications department at LA City College. So she made that drive, a single parent who was also helping to take care of her parents. And I knew, I knew that once she left, and she even told me that. She even said, look, I'm not coming back. I can't come back. How am I going to make it back all the way from Silmar to uh, L.A. City College, which is on Vermont and, and Melrose? It, it's very difficult to get back in the flow. So, yeah, keeping keeping people involved, even just for one class, Adolfo, as you mentioned, is, is something that uh, could really change someone's life. Now, lastly, uh, what have administrators uh, said about this and, and what ideas uh, do they have for lifting enrollment back up?
3: Well, colleges can give away computers, stock food pantries, and they can increase financial aid, uh, which they've been doing all these things. But the pandemic is the overriding factor. Until people feel safe themselves and among their families in the short term, many won't have the bandwidth, figuratively speaking, to enroll in college, even if they know that a college degree benefits them in the long
2: term. That's KPCC's higher ed reporter, Adolfo Guzman-Lopez, about the drop in enrollment across the state's community college system. Adolfo, thank you very much.
3: You're welcome. People get ready as a train.
2: The shadow of federal Judge David O. Carter has loomed over L.A.'s response to homelessness, especially big the last few months. Remember, he called the city to the carpet after one particularly rainy night in Skid Row. And now there could be a resolution in the works to a lawsuit Judge Carter was overseeing. Find out what the city of L.A. will be allowed to do if they come up with the beds for the unhoused. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
6: Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm A Martinez. We turn now to the latest in a federal lawsuit over how officials are handling homelessness in Los Angeles. Now, the last time we talked about this, the county had filed a motion for dismissal from the lawsuit. And yesterday, the plaintiffs filed a preliminary injunction. And then reports of a possible settlement with the city came out. So we're going to check in with L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes on both of these developments. Uh, Benjamin, so let's start with the possible settlement. Uh, What do you know about it so far?
5: Thanks for having me. For the last couple of months, as this lawsuit has played out in court, uh, lawyers for the city, lawyers for the plaintiffs who are a group of downtown, mostly downtown business owners and residents have been attempting to hash out an agreement. Um, and in recent weeks and months, the city council has deliberated in closed sessions, so behind closed doors, uh, not in public, about a deal that would create enough shelter over the next five years for 60% of the homeless people in each council district. That's the sort of top line number that is part of this deal. Uh, Once they hit that threshold for creating housing and shelter, it would allow council members to clear homeless camps that they find most problematic in their district as soon as space in these shelters becomes available. Once they have found, or worked on the problematic encampments, they could do their entire districts and then the whole city. So those are the larger contours of the deal. And my sources, uh, who I kind of checked in with over the last couple of weeks, have said that most of the city council is pretty receptive to that top line offer. But when it comes to uh, the more the details, uh, they're still being hashed out now. I don't think a deal is imminent, but there's definitely more to come And I think tomorrow uh, the city council is scheduled again to talk behind closed doors about the prospect of finding a settlement with these plaintiffs.
2: So 60 percent of each district's homeless uh, shelter, they'd have to find shelter. What's the timeline? How long would they have to get to that 60 percent?
5: Five years. years. Uh, And that would be a high bar for some of these districts where there are Thousands of people who are in shelters and on the streets, and they uh, would need to get building fast.
2: Yeah. Now, so what do we know about the type of shelter the city council would have to provide or build? I mean, would it be permanent housing, temporary housing? Any idea what uh, they're thinking about?
5: It's a good question. I think the parameters of what we've seen, uh, we were uh, uh, leaked a a proposed settlement offer. uh, It's intentionally vague. I think the plaintiffs want to give uh, the council some free range to to kind of decide on what they want to build. But critics of this deal sort of see these numbers and see this tying of creating shelter to enforcement as a way to sort of create uh, the lowest common denominator kind of housing that you could build. Uh, So think... Ten, uh, sanctioned tent camps, more uh, sort of congregate shelters, and less sort of durable housing.
2: Yeah, because I know, Ben, that that has been uh, part of the issue in terms of getting things built, getting anything built, in that uh, there, there are certain specifics that uh, one side wants this to be this color, another side wants it to be that kind of shape. So, I, you know, I'm wondering if they finally ironed that out so they can make something.
5: The devil is really in the details with a deal like this. And we have yet to see all of those details that you're talking about be ironed out. Uh, There's a lot of uh, dissent or lack of agreement uh, among the sort of council members about uh, aspect of this proposed settlement, which uh, concerns Skid Row, which is how to sort of right a wrong in terms of the history of the city, which has to do with concentrating resources in this area and kind of walling it off. Uh, and, And that in the deal, there's a proposal to sort of, quote, decompress that area in terms of people and services. The flip side of that is neighboring council districts worry that those people will move seamlessly into their districts and kind of uh, offset any gains they might make from building the shelter or housing that we're talking about as part of this deal.
2: And that's a big part of it, right? Been pitting a council person against another one because, yeah, you're right. If if, if one council district all of a sudden gets th- those people moved to the other, then it becomes
5: the other person's problem. Exactly. I think another issue that some members of the city council have, not least uh, that this is being done sort of behind closed doors, is that certain council members kind of start on third base to use a baseball metaphor in the sense that they don't have large homeless populations so they can quickly scale up and get to that 60% number. And then really quickly also then start enforcing uh, rules that would prevent people from sleeping on the street so that the people who are still on the street once that shelter has been built will be pushed into other council districts. And then you'd have places like Mike Bonin's district by the beach, the area around Skid Row for Kevin DeLeon uh, that would really st- are going to struggle to get to this number, or it will be a much higher bar to yeah. reach.
2: You mentioned Mike bonn and I-, I read about a proposal from Mike bonn and also Mark Billy Thomas to set up tiny houses, you know, those tiny little houses uh, in beach parking lots. And that's, uh, of course, has gotten uh, some pushback. But does that sort of idea, Benjamin, fit into what we're talking about?
5: I think it does. I think you can expect to see a wide range of different Uh, what we call housing interventions, so things like those tiny homes, or quite literally areas where people could just set up tents. For a person like Council Member Bonin, he uh, is doing the best with the limited resources he has in front of him and is trying all available options. Uh, You know as well as I, the city is expensive to live in and build in, and he's trying to do right by his constituents who um, feel let down in some cases Uh, with promises that were made when a a, a temporary shelter went up in Venice and and homelessness there has only gotten uh, greater and more tents are on the street. So I think for many of these council members, they're trying to tell their constituents that we need to find solutions. We can't just police our way out out of this problem. But residents while being more knowledgeable than ever and maybe more generous than ever, uh, have lost patience in many cases.
2: Talking to L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes. Uh, Benjamin, just thinking back to uh, Echo Park Lake and the way the LAPD was used to clear that area out. And and you mentioned how city council members will be able to enforce anti-camping laws if they come up with their end of the deal when it comes to shelter. Um, So how would the city council members be able to enforce these anti-camping laws if this thing goes forward?
5: Well, it really comes back to this tying of a ratio of housing that's been built or shelter that has been built to when you can enforce. So this would quite literally start with council offices being able to say, this is a problem encampment. Let's say it's under a freeway underpass or overpass. Uh, and, and once they've hit that number of having enough beds available for the people in that, they could begin to create uh, connections with the people in that community, uh, make their offers of housing or shelter, and once they arrive at sort of what has been called a decision date by some people involved in this case, uh, then begin enforcing the laws that prevent people from sleeping on the street.
2: In the same way Mitch O'Farrell did at Echo Park Lake using LAPD, because I mean, for a lot uh, of people, Benjamin, that uh, that didn't look good.
5: Yeah, it's a bit different in the sense that the park was closed for renovation. That was their stated reason. It was also done on 24 hours notice. Uh, The first time many people knew that this was happening was when they read my reporting in the Los Angeles Times. That secrecy frustrated many people. Uh, I think a lot of people I talked to looked at that experience and and saw that uh, a lot of gains in terms of getting people into hotels that are being rented by the city, a a lot of good outreach work was sort of overwhelmed and uh, by the secrecy surrounding that plan. And notably also, the park is fenced off and closed to everyone now. So I think that a lot of people, while seeing a lot of positives in that, uh, also look at it as a cautionary tale of how not to do this in the sense of giving people time to arrive at their own decision, uh, giving unsheltered homeless people uh, proper notice and a chance to sort of have agency in how they're going to live their lives as well.
2: Now, yesterday, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit also filed a preliminary injunction in the lawsuit. So what would uh, happen to have that motion granted?
5: Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in this case. Uh, and these two things, uh, what we just discussed, and this preliminary motion for preliminary injunction aren't necessarily connected. Uh, the plaintiffs, who I mentioned at the beginning, are a network mostly of downtown business owners uh, have been fed up with uh, the state of Skid Row and the surrounding areas. The, these are people who own businesses in that area and and, and they want action fast. They basically want the city and the county to offer some form of shelter to the most vulnerable people on Skid Row, namely the people who are living on the streets between 3rd and 8th and Alameda and Maine. Uh, and they want it to happen by August, within 90 days. Uh, their essential argument is, is they point to, uh, you know, fires that have occurred down there where a man died, they, they, they point to the just tons of people who, who lose their lives on the streets and say, this is not safe and we need to do something about it quickly. So they want the judge to sort of order the city and county to act fast on this front. And similarly to uh, their proposal for a settlement, they want the city to make these offers of shelter and then be able to enforce the rules that prevent people from sleeping on the street.
2: We've mentioned a few council members uh, so far, but to the mayor, Eric Garcetti, what does uh, he think of all this?
5: Uh, we have heard very little from him about this case in quite some time. Uh, you know, when I reached out to him in his office, uh, when I was doing my reporting about this proposed settlement, uh, I didn't get a response or, or they declined to comment. But, you know, he has spoken of the judge in, in very positive terms. Uh, he, he sort of says, every, you know, I'm part of the Judge Carter fan club. Uh, he has seen him as a kind of an agent of good in this city. Um, at the same time, uh, I think we've seen behind closed doors, the city is very engaged on this front, but also that the city attorney uh, has to sort of think about the, the the city's best legal interests in mind. And that has maybe kind of slowed the negotiating process uh, and more so than what you might have seen if this wasn't occurring in a court setting.
2: Ben, what do groups who serve Skid Row, particularly the Los Angeles Community Action Network, think of the settlement?
5: Sure. Uh, You know, they're interveners in the case. So they are at the table for much of this and had not uh, been aware of the specifics of this deal until I reached out to their representatives, Mm -hmm. to their lawyers. And uh, they hate it, uh, to (laughs) put it bluntly. Uh, They see this as like a continued uh, assault on the rights of homeless people. Uh, They worry that this will be um, much, a lot more money spent on shelters rather than sort of changing the paradigm when it comes to permanent housing in the city. And again, they they don't like the tying of offers of shelter and the creation of it by elected officials to enforcement. Their view of this is that elected officials are going to look for the easiest way to satisfy that 60% number. And so Pete White, who runs the Los Angeles Community Action Network said, you know, the LAPD is going to get to arrest houseless people and banish them from Public spaces. If this deal goes through, so I think their feeling is is that this deal doesn't have the best interests of the people on the streets at mind.
2: Uh, really quick, Ben. Uh, so, what's next on this? What has to happen next?
5: Very good question. Um, with both the settle um, the settlement offer and this preliminary injunction, uh, there's still a lot more steps before either kind of would be implemented. We have to hear from the judge when it with the request for injunction. Uh, And then with the settlement, uh, the city has to agree to it. Um, And I think we're not close to that happening. Uh, I could be wrong on that front. But so I think we should expect for the judge to, another hearing in the next couple of weeks uh, and and have him weigh in on this proposal for uh, a preliminary injunction. And then something else yeah. that we haven't discussed uh, in this session, but we have talked about before is the city, uh, the county's desire to be released from this lawsuit. That's right. Lawsuit. Yeah. That's right. That's and so part with of it. both of the, with both of those things, the judge needs to weigh in and uh, both could, you know, in different ways uh, be appealed to the ninth circuit, a higher court. Uh, but I think we, there's a sort of I got to leave it, it there. Right hey, now. Ben,
2: thank you very much. That's Benjamin Oreskes, general assignment reporter for the LA Times. More take two coming right up.
5: Thanks.
0: As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water.
5: I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley.
0: How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
2: Back now with more, take two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Amy Martinez. When we speak of the leaders of the civil rights movement, it's often in terms of the men of the movement. I Think Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., even James Baldwin. Women, particularly black women, have historically been downplayed or even overlooked. Now, for this reason, black feminist scholar Anna Malika Tubbs was inspired to write The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. It explores the civil rights movement through the lens of what she calls the woman before the man here's Anna Malika Tubbs in her own words One day
6: when the glory comes it will be, ours, it will be
4: ours. each of the sons really seem to... Honor their mothers and respect their moms, and they carried an awareness of how important their mothers were to their role into their life. And um, all of them gave credit to their moms in different ways. So, Alberta King and Martin Luther King Jr. were incredibly close. He always asked her for counsel on anything that he was dealing with, and she was so in love with her son and with all of her children, and she cared about them of course, she was also very worried about the work that they were doing. It was very difficult for her to see her children put their lives on the line for something much larger than themselves and she expressed that vulnerability and she expressed that concern and because of it MLK Jr. was always updating her and just letting her know that yes he was okay but also there were risks to the work and he just needed to continue doing what he was doing. Malcolm X and Louis Little, um, you know, he was separated from his mother at a very young age. His family dealt with very direct violent attacks from white supremacist groups because both of his parents were activists, they were outspoken, they were proud of their black identity, they wanted to be independent of the white community, they didn't believe in assimilating to white culture. And so everywhere they went, Um, It was very intentional as part of their work as these Garveyites, but they were persecuted because of that. And so their house was burned down. Um, Her husband was murdered, and Louise herself was put in an institution against her will for 25 years of her life. And her children, who were very young at the time, were separated from her. So Malcolm, in many ways, is responding to this violence, this kind of violence that MLK Jr. certainly was not, exposed to in the same way. And he carries forward this black pride, black self-sufficiency movement, um, and sees that. And he gives credit to his mom, even when he's writing letters while he's in prison and says, she is the first one who introduced me to this. Um, this was her approach to freedom as well. And I thank her for
5: that. These songs of freedom, cause all I ever have
4: With James Baldwin, he was his mother's first son um, out of nine children and their lives are interconnected, inextricable from each other. Again, this is a son who will update his mom on everything. He sees himself as her right-hand man. He helps her with the birth of all the other children um, and taking care of them and raising them. because. She was the victim of an abusive relationship. His stepfather was incredibly abusive, not only towards her, but also towards him. So he really saw himself as the person who was his mom's closest confidant, and she was that for him. And when he traveled abroad, he would send her letters. And even when he passed away, one of his dying wishes, because he died before his mother, was that he'd have a double plot so that she could join him when it was her time to do so. In terms of how the moms felt about their role, it's sad because there's not much that I could find that was first person that they'd written. Um, They did write letters, you know, to their family members, but it's less about their role and, you know, more about supporting their children and supporting their grandchildren, but from their different actions and from everything I've been able to compile, they did seem aware that their role as mothers, um, and even before they became mothers, they were each involved in some way, and some form, in arts and in creativity and in activism, even if I don't think they would call themselves activists, all of them would. But they were giving back to their communities and they were participating in this fight against Jim Crow um, and this time that they found themselves in. And so with that awareness, that's how they, they raised their sons. I also became a mother while writing this book and uh, you know, I started the research before, but my second year of the research, I found myself expecting my son. And that gave me a new layer of connection to them because as much as I was overjoyed and excited, the truth of the matter is that it's very dangerous as a black woman to have a child in the United States. We are more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth, um, whether or not we're educated, whether or not we have um, access to different resources and connections. Um, The American gynecological system is built on this notion that black women are less than human, that we don't feel pain in the same way that other people do. Uh, It was literally built by experimenting on the bodies of enslaved women. And the C-section was perfected by cutting into the bodies of laboring black women. And we see remnants of that today where black women say something is wrong and they're not heard and many die as a result of that. It happens every day in this country. So I was also very terrified. I was well aware of those issues as a black feminist scholar. Uh, And studying these women gave me some hope. It gave me some feeling of power and agency that there were things I could do and I could be a part of changing the system and transforming it because I realized that with Alberta, Burtis, and Louise They also knew that they and their children were going to be seen as less than human. uh, And they couldn't just accept that as something that was inevitable. Instead, they said, okay, then we're part of this change. There's something that's very politicizing about black motherhood, because this is your most precious being, and you need to help the world see them in the same light that you do.
1: Simple walk to the corner store Mama never thought you would be getting a call from the coroner so the sun's been gunned down, been gunned down. Can you calm down? Tears in her eyes, can you calm down? Please, ma'am, can you calm down? But it fire in the city that That's Anna
2: Malaika Tubbs. Said, She's the author of the book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. Olivia Richard produced that piece for us. Now to read her extended interview with Anna, visit us at LAist.com slash the eight percent using the number eight at LAS dot com slash the eight percent. I think of all you could have done More Take Two coming up in sixty seconds. Stay with us.
6: The journalists of LAist work for you.
0: I'm LAist immigrant communities
3: correspondent Leslie Baer Rojas. For many, this has been their only job since immigrating to the United
0: States. My work connects communities, helping us discover one another, better understand how immigrants are changing L.A. and how L.A. changes immigrants.
6: LAist,
2: independent journalism, fact-based journalism. now with more take two on 89.3 kpcc and kpcc.org i mean martinez california's fire season is looking grim this year that after the state experienced a record-breaking fire season just last year and on a fairly dry winter this year Researchers at San Jose State University recently sampled plants in the Santa Cruz Mountains and discovered below-average fuel moisture, meaning the land is pretty parched out there. Here to tell us about the conditions and what to expect this fire season is Craig Clements, a professor and director of the San Jose State University's Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center. Professor, okay, first, can you share a few specifics about what you found while sampling plants in the Santa Cruz Mountains?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. So what we do is we go out into the field and we clip plants. These are uh, living plants. And so that gives us a sense of the fuel moisture content or how much water is inside the plant. And what we found for April 1st is that these plants are drier than they've ever been for April. And that's because they're uh, still dormant. There hasn't been enough rain to allow these plants to grow in the spring. So they're very, very dry. And Professor, you could tell by just looking at them, right? Yeah. When you go out into these fields of uh, chaparral, it's a uh, chemise is the common plant that we sample throughout the state, both Northern California and Southern California. And you can see that the, gr- the new growth just isn't there yet. It's starting to come up this last week. So uh, we hope that there's more new growth across the state, but all the values for April 1st are below average, even from San Diego, LA to Northern California.
2: And that new growth has a color, right? Is that, that's, that's how you were able to tell that, uh-oh, we're in trouble.
6: Yeah. If there's nothing to clip, if there's no green new uh, sprouts or yeah. stems coming out of the plants, then you, you you know that the plants are still somewhat dormant and not responding or they're actually responding to the lack of rain.
2: Yeah. So what impact does fuel moisture have on the spread of wildfires and what's the difference between live and dead fuel?
6: Yeah. So uh, fuel moisture is a really important aspect of fire behavior. It's, if you think about a campfire, if you try to go start a campfire, you don't want wet logs to burn. They won't burn. It's the same thing with our shrubs and trees. So if they're living, they're bringing soil moisture out of the ground into their stems and leaves, and so it's harder for them to ignite. Uh, if we have uh, very dry fuels, it's easier for a fire to ignite those fuels. So dead fuels are uh, either grasses that have been cured fully or sticks and logs that are laying on the ground that have fallen off of trees and such. And so those are fuels that are no longer connected to a living uh, shrub or tree. They are a different type of fuel class, whereas live fuels are the living plants. And so you, you see when you see a wildfire, it's burning both the dead stuff and the living plants. So we have to take into consideration both those uh, moisture contents.
2: So what you saw and what you guys clipped, how does that compare to sampling from years past?
6: Well, this is the first April that we haven't had new growth uh, in in our sites here in the South Bay area, San Francisco Bay area. Now that's not totally uncommon for other areas in uh, California. We sometimes, depending on the geographic location, sometimes it's a later um, uh, spring, later growth. So, you know, we're still in this period where we're looking at the fuel. So we're going out in the next few days to get the mid month. These fuels are sampled every two weeks, every month. So all year round. So we have a really good understanding of what's going on with the plants.
2: Do you almost dread what you're going to see the next time you go out?
6: No, I've been hearing some reports that other regions are actually getting some of their um, new growth. And so that's good. Uh, But our sites here in the South Bay, because the the, the San Jose area received 40% of normal rain. That's extremely low. And so that's what uh, the fuels are responding to is that lack of rain, even in the Santa Cruz mountains, which is a rainforest. So these, these fuels are just uh, stressed highly because of the lack of rain.
2: And the snowpack too, that, that plays into it.
6: Yeah. So the lack of snow in the Sierra Nevada, that's affecting the fuels there. So we're going to have We'll see what happens. I think May is really going to be telling across the state what the condition of our fuels are. But right now in April, it looks pretty severe.
2: Talking to Craig Clements, professor at San Jose State University and director of the Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center. Uh, So, Professor, how worried should we be about these dry conditions going into a fire season? I realize that California's fire season is year round, but what can we expect?
6: well if we don't have the ignition then we won't have a fire no. so it's always based on the ignition but if we if we do get ignitions which obviously we will we will expect these fires to probably burn hot and intense a lot like uh maybe 2020 and what we saw then
2: at this point though if if we get soaked with rain will that help or is, are we too far down that dry road
6: Uh, It does help, actually. Late spring rains really do reduce, they increase the fuel moisture. So there's a lag in Chemise. It's about 20 to 25 days of response for that rain to get into the soil and then for the plant to uptake that uh, soil moisture. And so generally, uh, we can see an uptick in fuel moisture content. And if we look at 2019, in Northern California, we had some late rain in the spring and May. That really increased the fuel moisture content and reduced fires spreading in June and July. It wasn't until late fall that we had the biggest fires of 2019.
2: So literally better late than not at all.
6: Right. But the way the the forecasts are looking, it doesn't look very promising across the state.
2: All right. So considering, you know, what we know about current conditions, um, any way to get ahead of this or I mean, what's 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 the outlook?
6: Well, with the forecast of climate change and what we're seeing in the western U.S. with uh, more arid conditions, more drought, we should actually unfortunately expect more fire and drier fuels and more fire. So it's not a, a pretty picture when you think about in the next decade or so.
2: You know, last week, Governor Gavin Newsom um, proposed and actually today he signed that five hundred and thirty six million dollar wildfire prevention and preparedness bill. It's going to allow for more prescribed burns and and vegetation management, among other uh, efforts. Um, How helpful? I'm wondering if you think uh, this could be as we prepare for fire season, not just for this year, but down the road.
6: Oh, I think it's great. I think it's going to be very helpful for California because we need more prescribed fire on the landscape. There's no doubt about that. We need more fuel reduction programs across different ecosystems across the state. So I think it's very useful and I'm really glad to see it.
2: Is there anything that in a perfect world professor you would add or tack on to this bill uh, if, if you had the final word on it?
6: Well, obviously, more research funding uh, for uh, research centers like my, our, ourselves here at San Jose State and others in, around the western U.S. So I think, you know, wildfire research has been neglected uh, for many, many years. And so it's not like if we think about hurricanes and tornadoes, lots of research, lots of uh, assets Damn for those types of things. We don't have that here in for wildfire. And that's what we need on a national scale.
2: And one of the things that really jumped out at me from last week and just reading some of the details of of that bill was that Northern California and Southern California were going to be treated differently. Um, Have we been doing a, a one size fits all approach for wildfire in California that now maybe will get better because we're really narrowing down on the on the regional aspect of this?
6: Yeah, that's a good point. I think that uh, there's different types of ecosystems, obviously, across the state. So Northern California has, you know, big forests that are hard to access. Southern California has lots of chaparral. And so there's different w- uh, ways to, to mitigate those fuels or to, to reduce those fuels. So, yeah, I think that's good.
2: That's Craig Clements, professor at San Jose State University and director of the Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center. Professor Clements, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I've always said that Take Two is the perfect show that you could take a walk with. We're about 49 minutes long when you download us wherever you get your podcast. You can take that entire 49 minutes to walk. You'll exercise. Your body will feel better. Your brain will be smarter. I mean, it is the perfect show to be a companion. How about that? Just do it. Just download it wherever you get your podcast there. We will be waiting to be heard by you. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.